welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Molly Jong Fast, Vanity Fair special correspondent. You're with me right now. Happy New Year. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, you're always welcome. We want you on here as much as possible in the year 2023. That's right. Did you ever think it would come to this? It definitely seems like the kind of thing from a a sci-fi movie, right? 2023? Totally. Yeah. A new year, but some things have changed, but mostly they haven't. They're very much like they were in December 2022. 118th Congress beginning today. As we sit here and record, we don't know yet the fate of Kevin McCarthy, the congressman from California, Uh, although we know the fate of his soul. (laughs) Um, But that's for his um, religious guides to work out for him. I mean, I think whatever happens, so right now there's a vote, we're taping this, we don't know, but uh, whatever happens, uh, it's a 100-year precedent being broken because the very likely scenario is this first vote is going to fail. Um, And also, uh, you know, they have Republicans have already shown us, despite having been in the majority for not even an hour, that they uh, are the chaos caucus. I find it remarkable that all of this is happening. I mean, I always already thought Kevin McCarthy was an extremist because of his bendability around whatever Trump decided he needed to do, his complete pivot on January 6th and all that happened, he seemed like the perfect guy for the party. He'll go wherever they want him to go as long as they keep him propped up. But now, even after they barely uh, retained power or won power in Congress, uh, they're going in the direction of the candidates who basically lost power for them, ultimately. So I would say, I mean, we just heard someone else say this, that the idea that they cannot, these Republicans... This is the third if you if you look at the election cycle, right? Yeah. 2018, 2020, 2022, three election cycles with Trump at the helm, each one more disappointing and pathetic than the one before it. And uh, so one would think that after three loser cycles, Republicans would pause, they would take a deep breath, they would look at themselves and they would say, you know, it seems like the fact that we can't get a Carrie Lake elected, that we really can't get anyone in a swing state elected, shows that this is really not what voters want. I mean, I was actually thinking about this today um, because there was a piece that I read yesterday about how I, I think it was actually a really dumb piece of writing, but it said most people are independents and there should be more senators like Kirsten Cinema. Now, Kirsten Sinema is not an independent because she's independent. She's an independent because she's alienated her party and they don't like her anymore. But I do think like Republicans, there's an there's a lane for a sane Republican party. I mean, there are people who want to support it. The problem is the Republican Party isn't interested in that. They're interested in this weird cult of personality. And now they don't even have anyone to lead the cult. And they're still doing the same thing. Right. They don't learn which is the definition of insanity, that you uh, repeatedly do the thing that's not working. 
uh, against all reason. And, and you know, there is uh, – I, I feel like the lesson I draw from this last election cycle is that for the last many years, we've been saying there is no center left. And yet there does seem to be a center, a political oh, center. Yeah. The center did hold. People did decide, you know what? This is not reasonable, these candidates. And Democrats very gamely and uh, in a wily sort of way, you know, actually, as we know, backed some of those Trump candidates in the primaries because they knew they couldn't win. And it turned out to be a right. It was a good bet. And now as we stand here today, like the extreme losers of their party, um, I'm calling them losers in the sort of generic sense, uh, want to you know continue to hold the reins and guide it. And it's almost because really what they're looking to do is continue their careers as like shock artists, right? Like shock jock politicians. I mean, what I would say is the quiet story that you haven't read that should be the top line from the last month is that Democrats have been quietly doing what Republicans always do or threaten to do, right? Like if you think about, so we just came from this Christmas, New Year's break where we had the House release all of Trump's taxes, five years of taxes, right, 2015 to 2020. So that already, you know, they did it before they lost the gavel, which I think is the kind of thing that is was good. I'm glad they did it, but it's it's a very ballsy move. And then they also um, they had this January 6th hearing, and they had it till the very last second. They published a report, and then they went and released all of the testimony. I mean, things from Ivanka's chief of staff and Hope Hicks, and you know, very embarrassing stuff. A lot of which. Uh, you know, really hurt Republicans. I mean, I don't know, you know, in our media ecosystem where everything is so, where the news cycles change so quickly, I don't know that it will get the kind of attention that it needs to. But I mean, there was a lot of stuff released during this Christmas break that was very damaging to both Trump and the Republican Party and all these members of Congress who are now being seated in this 118th Congress many of whom were involved in January 6th or spoke at the insurrection or, you know, were uh, election deniers. Yeah. Well, and now that um, all that evidence in the public record and also in the hands of the new um, prosecutor that Merrick Garland put on the case, and we'll see what his appetite is for going forward with some kind of investigation and prosecution uh, based on all that information, which is plenty of it there. But I, I think one of the things that we do draw from it before we know what's going to happen with all that evidence and whether it will be actionable legally is that people were moved by uh, the fear that it meant something bad for democracy if we keep supporting that. And, you know, my, my question now with this new Congress is there going to be a Joe Manchin of the right or more than one, somebody who decides there is, you know, they are going to leverage their power towards the center away from these people. Well, I would caution you not to get too uh, West Optimistic. Wing on this, <laughs> right? Because the Republican Party is largely an obstructionist party. I would say, um, you know, Republicans won the House by flipping seats that are purple seats, right? So these new congressmen, the congressmen, I mean, you obviously can't use 
uh, uh, you can't use Santos, right, the congressman Mm -hmm. from Nassau County. But if you, I mean, because he's a pathological liar and assume he'll be out pretty soon. But like, uh, you can't, you know, a lot of these districts are really not, um, they're really not Republican districts. And so some of these people will have to go to the center or they will just lose their uh, seats, which I think is likely too. I mean, look, 2024 is a, is when we shouldn't even talk about it because it's so it's so far away. But mm-hmm. um, it's a the map is not a good Senate map for Democrats. You know, they're going to have to defend uh, Sherrod Brown's seat in Ohio. They're going to have to defend. I mean, whatever they're going to do with the craziness in West Virginia with Manchin. There's going to be, I think, a showdown between Kirsten Cinema and uh, Ruben Gallego, which will be crazy. So I do think that the House will be an easier pickup for Democrats. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor in chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Well, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves on 2024. <laughs> There's a lot yet to unfold. Um, the storylines are in the of 2023 are in the green shoot phase. <laughs> but I do want to uh, bring our listeners' attention to something uh, really remarkable that happened, which is that Molly Jong Fast had an interview with Vice President Kamala Harris, and it was so secret that I didn't even know it was coming. And then it landed, and I really want to talk about it because it's it's amazing get right off the bat. But it also uh, brings up a topic that I don't feel like we've talked about enough, which is Kamala Harris. Yeah. You know, what what up with Kamala Harris? <laughs> um, and and it, I was, I've been thinking a lot about her because, as you point out in the story, she is – kind of in a really complicated role. I mean, A, she's vice president. It's always like a tricky job. Um, but also that she is a, a, you know, the first, a first, a first woman, a yeah. first African-American, first South Asian, um, you know, American to be in that position. She has a lot of responsibility and pressure on her. As you note in the article, uh, you know, there was a sense that her staff really felt like protective of her and we yeah. had to really make all this happen. But uh, but she has not been very forward in the in the administration. She's been a recessed figure. And uh, what's your interpretation of that? Do you think it's because of these things you mentioned, or is it the nature of the Biden administration and the way they operate? So I think that when you talk about the vice president, remember there's this issue of intersectionality, right? Because she is the first female, but she's also a person of color. So. It's important to be conscious, I think, of just how much her firstness shapes some of the anxiety about her. For example, she's a vice president. This is inherently—can I curse? Absolutely. 
More the merrier. Uh, this is inherently a very shitty job, vice president, right? Like, I mean, let us go back. She's not president, right? She's not, you know, so let us go back and think of like vice president before Biden, who, by the when he was vice president, was not, you know, thought right. of as a great statesman. Uh, you know, Dan Quayle. I mean, even like a Dick Cheney, who was a sort of very respected vice president, Basically, people assume that he was president. Right. He was an outlier in that regard. Right. And so I think what's important when you look at this first is that here, that this is a function of the job, right? You either, and I, I actually think back to like when she was sworn in and people were immediately like, she is the real president. Biden is the fake president. Mm -hmm. She is, all the right wingers were like, she is pulling the strings from behind. Sure. And they immediately shut that down. And I think I think that that was a sort of one of the many ways in which the right has been uh, very sort of attacking her and trying to kind of cut the legs out. So that was one. Another one was that she wasn't the right kind of she wasn't an African-American. She was from the her father was from the Caribbean. And that made her which, by the way, again, is appalling. Right. Mm -hmm. Just an appalling, appalling. You know, it's like saying that my family, my you know, my family is Jewish and came over in the 1800s. So because they didn't die in the Holocaust, they're not real Jews. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just completely crazy. Right. Uh, but the other thing I would say about her is that she has, um, you know, she wasn't a senator for that long, right? But she was the second female black senator ever, right? And she was the AG of California. She had this humongous job. So she is, and it's not like she's some lightweight. Like she's, a, you know, some of the reason people don't like her is because she has this criminal justice background and she's a prosecutor. And um, so the thing that I've been struck by is you will have people who seem very liberal and they will come to me and they will, you know, especially after I just interviewed her, they'll say, yeah, I don't know why I don't like her, but I don't. Right. Which is the same thing they said about Hillary. Right. I don't know why I don't like her, but I don't. Well, if you don't know why you don't like her, maybe it's about you and not yeah, her, yeah. you know. Hmm. And I think so. I do think like I do think she is in a very tough pot position partially because of the virtue of the fact of being first at everything and partially uh, in the virtue of the fact that she's vice president. But also, we are a country that does not like women. We do not elect them. I mean, you I you know, you that. got, right, you had Margaret Thatcher in the 80s, right? I mean, you just, we are not a country that elects women. And so you really see, and even like, for example, Nancy Pelosi was the Speaker of the House, it was, an, you know, a, a big first and a glass ceiling crushed. But she was really hated. Reviled by, a, by the right. Yeah. yeah. As was Hillary Clinton, right? Yeah. Oh, my um, God. And, you know, talking about likability, she hasn't been given a platform to be likable. <laughs> I mean, she she's not out there. Right. Um, right. And she's in this straight jacket we're talking about, which of all these issues you mentioned. And I would say on top of that, you know, Biden himself is hardly out there. I mean, he, you know, part of his political strategium, it seems to me, has been to be pretty careful about how much he's in the news cycle. He's not in. He's very, you know, he rope-a-dopes often by leaning back, not being super forward. It was a harder reaction to the 24-7 Trump presidency, which right. nobody wanted anymore. 
So if he's not like out front on on the reg, then she's, you know, clearly going to be even less so, right? I mean, I would argue, like, if you look at the midterms, like, one of the quietest winners of this whole cycle, Tony Evers in Wisconsin. And he says he won by four points, which in Wisconsin is like winning by 40, right? This is a very tight state. Yep. And he said he won by being boring. Yes. You know? Mm -hmm. And so I do think the American people want boring. They do not want the Trump show. And we saw this from the midterms. They don't want a Carrie Lake. They don't want a Blake Masters. I mean, they barely want a J.D. Vance. And part of that was a function of him being in a very red state. So I do think what the Biden administration is actually doing is actually working for them. But it doesn't necessarily help her to become the celebrity she theoretically could be. Though I'm not convinced, you know, like one of the things with Obama Obama was like a once in a lifetime politician. Right. So when he would give a speech, it would be, you know, just a sort of totally different experience. And so you could have someone like Obama as a cult of personality. And he was also very smart and very organized and not, uh, you know, very much the opposite of Trump. But, you know, you don't have that. These people are not that. And and so I'm not sure you even want I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure what they're doing isn't helping them. Right. Well, the other thing is we have to add is that she doesn't want to present or telegraph, nor does the Biden administration want her to telegraph that she's sort of in the wings waiting for him right. to leave, and especially at a time when he's thinking about running uh, announcing another run. So I mean, that's the tension there. I mean, I do think he will run again, and I do think I mean, unless the Republicans get their shit together, which seems very unlikely to me, I do think that it'll be like this horrible redux of 2020. And I do think there's a real path for Biden to win again. But I but um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of anxiety there that that people will say, well, she's the real president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember I was down in Florida a year ago or so, uh, you know, reporting on sort of the right wing culture in Florida, uh, all the conspiracy nuts down there thought that Jill Biden was behind the throne. They, they you know, they right. want to think of it as like there's a nefarious female cabal always lurking in the oh, yeah. uh, Republican imagination, right? Exactly. Um, let's talk for a minute about what we, you know, one of the issues that we we can easily foresee this House majority Republicans pursuing in addition to all the other kind of flim flam about uh, Hunter Biden and so forth, is immigration. And you talked to Vice President uh, Harris about immigration. It's something she's on a task force to investigate what to do about that and what the root causes of it are, right? And what, did she say, what did she have to say about that? So I wanted to talk about that because that is the thing that um, conservatives always say, like, you never ask her about the border. Ask her about the border. Mm -hmm. Yell at her about the border. Mm -hmm. Why hasn't she gone to the border? The Republicans love this idea that if somehow if you could get Democratic electeds to go to the border, they would then be so ashamed of immigration, which we desperately need in our tight labor market, that they would close, they would build an enormous wall and we would close our country to immigrants so we could become Japan. Right. Um, so what I would say is uh, what I thought was interesting, again, was uh, someone said to me before I went into this interview, oh, you know, Joe has set her up to fail because he's given her 
the border, and that's an impossible task. So I was talking to her foreign policy person, and I said, you know, I said, it does seem like an impossible task to me. And he said, you know, this is exactly the same job that Biden had in the Obama administration, which I thought was such an important data point, right? Like she had the exact same job that Biden had. Um, And it's this root causes of migration, right? Fast forward, the root causes are climate change, corruption of government, poverty. You know, ultimately, again, here's the problem with this border, Republicans on the border. Until Republicans legislate some path to citizenship, we will continually have a border crisis. Republicans refuse to legislate, period, paragraph, but they're certainly not going to legislate on immigration because this is all they have. Ergo, we will forever be stuck in this insane thing where we will not have people to work the jobs that we desperately need because Republicans have figured out the only way they can run is on racism. And so, like, it's impossible, right? She can do some things. They can do some things. They can, you know, they and one of the things she's doing which actually is pretty interesting is she has a very good relationship with the president of Mexico, which is really that is got is got to be the game because these people are coming through Mexico. So, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting. I don't think, again, you can't fix the cause of migration until you have a legislation, until you have a path. If there's no path, there's no answer. And so it's just all of this is just a bandaid until they do that, which they never will do. Right. Well, by your own explanation, it is a pretty impossible task that they've no, given. No, it's a total. I mean, the what she did a thing which I thought was good and smart, and is something the Biden administration has quietly been doing a lot of, which is this public-private partnership, which is you get companies to invest. You know, she had companies invest three billion dollars in making stuff in factories in those countries. By the way, I mean. If you're going to move, there's a big, a big movement in the Biden administration to move manufacturing out of China, especially with the microchips. I know, I'm sure you know all about how boring this is, but mm-hmm. basically, Gina Raimondo, who is the Commerce Secretary, is quite smart, was the governor of uh, Rhode Island, said that she, she has been working on this idea of moving these these chips out of China and moving them back to the states. Any number of reasons, largely because of um, COVID, but also I think COVID started, but also Xi Jinping is not a good actor. And to be dependent on this country, this very likely, um, you know, this country that is not necessarily our friends for stuff we must have is pretty serious stuff. So um, so there is a I think there's a path to building a lot of this stuff in Mexico. Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the what are the challenges there, like security? Yeah, I mean, Mexico's an interesting place, and I think that um, there is more— there's a lot of talk between the United States and Mexico, and I think that that would ultimately— I mean, right now they're moving chip manufacturing to states, but, you know, again, with the problem with this bringing manufacturing back to the states is you have this tight, tight labor market. So we're bringing manufacturing back to a place where there are— and isn't anyone to work in the factories. And so I think ultimately Mexico might be a place for this. But yeah, I mean, again, there are like real tangible things we can do with immigration as a country. The problem is Republicans, that's not really where Republicans' interests are, right? Right. The interests are in bludgeoning 
uh, the vice president with this and to say, you know, this is, you know, we have to stop this. Whereas the where it's really we have to solve this. Right. Right. Uh, well, they're not going to be uh, in, interested and engaged in doing any solving of anything uh, no. other than finding a leader who will be a their new disruptor. Exactly. Let me pivot for a minute. Well, first of all, everybody go out and read uh, this Kamala Harris interview. It's very interesting. It's just interesting to hear her, you know, to basically see her quoted and feel that she's present in the world and that she's on the job and on the case. And so thank you, Molly, for uh, getting that interview and bringing it to Vanity Fair. It's totally awesome. Everybody could check it out. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, during the holidays, we miss a lot of stories. And if you're going to flag something from the last month and bring it to the top of your uh, your read list, put this on it. Um, I want to talk to you for a minute uh, just about something that I know is uh, near and dear to your heart, or at least at the center of your world, which is Twitter. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you're, you're a, uh, you're a, a, a Twitter. A power a, user. A Twitterer, power user. Um you know, I, I'm a fair weather Twitter user. I'm sort of off of it right now, but both of you and were, uh, you and I were on a um, podcast called Twitterverse, right? With our, right. With our uh, our friend Gabe Hudson, uh, who is concerned about all things t- uh, Twitter, which uh, I felt for him because he started his podcast basically in concurrence with um, Elon Musk buying Twitter and potentially destroying the entire thing. Yeah. Where do you stand today? Here, January third. 2023, we're on the precipice of big changes at Twitter, or we're in the middle of them. Uh, are you still engaged with it? Do you still like it? Do you feel ambivalent now? Or where are you with it? I mean, I think it's fine. I don't have any, I think it's work. I mean, is it working slightly less well than it used to? Maybe, but I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm in it until they, uh, you know, Turn until the lights they, up. Right, until they, I'm riding it down to zero. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, look, Twitter is a public utility, ultimately. That's why it's not so profitable. I, You know, Elon thinks he can make it, make money. I'm not sure that's true. He's destroying a lot of his own wealth in the process. We'll see. I mean, I think, I think eventually, like with many billionaires, he'll get bored with this because it's very low uh, value, you know. What I think is very interesting about this whole thing is that here are these tech billionaires who have made so much money on content, right? Like, look at Facebook. Facebook would not exist if it hadn't had Vanity Fair articles to share, right? And they made so much money on our fucking content, on our, you know, on our writing. You know, they haven't, like, paid us, you know, like— you could get a syndicated, you know, nobody pays writers the way they would pay with a syndicated column, right? There's been tech has really made a ton of money on the backs of writers. And now they want to start a new media company. Like you put our fucking, you put us out of business. And now you're like, we just want, we hate the media. They all hate the media. Yeah. And we want Irony. to start our own media which doesn't have the kind of gatekeepers, but is more, you know, like Elon just wants 
Tesla news to cover him, right? He wants sycophants. <laughs> yeah. And, and like the thing is, you know, he wants sycophants to write about him flatteringly. And that is why they hate the media. And it's just like, it just blows my mind. Because like, you know, these people made this wealth on our content. And it just blows my mind. It's such a fucking ballsy move. Well, here's something I don't understand. Maybe you can explain it to me. I don't get it. First of all, the media aren't saints. You know, they're all over the place. They, they, every point of view is, gets represented somewhere along the line. But the main thing about the mainstream media, quote unquote, is that it is like mostly responsible for, uh, you know, mediating information. And it puts money into it and it courts advertisers and we know how media works. But so he's sort of like, let's take out the part where we're mediating it. Yeah. Let the let the hogs go wild, and then alienate all the advertisers. Well, he uh, loves. He hasn't totally thought this through. He loves <laughs> citizen journalism. He loves yeah. citizen because a lot of these citizens really like him because he's a billionaire. Yeah. So he thinks that. I mean, one of the if you were to go back in time, right, and say to mainstream media, "Hey, if you suck up to Elon Musk, go buy all your newspapers." Yeah. I mean, basically. Right. So he loves a Glenn Greenwald or a Barry Weiss because he feels that those people really understand him. But an interesting thing that what happened with him and Barry Weiss was that he gave Barry Weiss access to the Twitter files. The Twitter files, by the way, showed that Twitter had, you know, made some decisions, content, mo- had showed that content moderation decisions are impossible. Right. right. That's what it basically showed. They're impossible decisions. It's you, everybody's mad at you. You never really do the right thing and you never know. And by the way, in my mind, I want to know what they did for China. I want to know what they did for Russia. I want to know what foreign countries, what, what the Bolsonaro government was saying to Twitter. Like, I want to know about all of that, which was none of it was, you know, all we saw was America. Like, I'd love to know what the UK was doing with Twitter. I'd love to know what Italy was doing. I'd love to know what kind of negotiation was happening with the EU. Um, So I found it to be very, uh, you know, it was clear he wanted us to see what he wanted us to see. And then he got very mad at Barry because she wasn't going along with it, right? She wasn't, you know, she had, she, you know, she comes from the New York Times. I mean, listen, I'm no fan of Barry Weiss, but she had decided basically that she was kind of, too good for just outright sycophancy. And so she had, you know, and then he got mad at her and unfollowed her and said she didn't, you know, that she didn't care that a stalker had tried to stalk his child, which, by the way, had turned out that his bodyguard had hurt somebody and there had been a police report but filed against Elon's bodyguard. So, again, I mean, it does strike me that it seems as if Elon is not a particularly good actor in any of this. Well, let me just say, let's go to 20,000 feet here for a second. Yeah. The average person could not give a flying crap about these Twitter files. It is so mm. narrow cast of a thing that he got obsessed with that by the time it, you know, whatever's going on on Twitter migrates to the average person right. out in the world, they don't, all they come away with is Elon Musk is nut. You know, I mean, yeah. that's basically what it ends up being is like it kind of like people don't have the time to like go through, sift well, through the, you know, the sub, sub, subplot of this whole thing and figure out what the fuck he's talking about. And then the takeaway ends up being I just saw it on Stephen Colbert or whatever and that he's a nut. 
you know. So yeah. he's, he's not doing himself any favors. But does he is he even aware of that, or is he so obsessed well, with his own? It's this is the thing with tech billionaires that we have talked about ad nauseum, which is that this is the year when tech billionaires have completely forgotten. You know, they've been so surrounded by sick fans that they no longer have any. You know, it's what happens to famous people too. They have no longer any sense of what the real world is like. So, you know, Elon thinks the greatest thing to, ha- you know, the worst thing to happen to humankind is that his his uh, private jet is being tracked, you know, when the rest of the world is not like this. I mean, I do think tech billionaires had, they had a couple years where the American people were willing to love them just by the fact that they were very rich. And then this year, they sort of unveiled themselves to all be villains and uh, and I think that was strategically a very stupid move for them because ultimately it's going to mean more taxation because you're going to have – I mean, right now you have Republicans loving them because they think Republicans are on their so- – you know, that these tech billionaires are on Republican sides. But sooner or later, you're going to end up having a populist movement that's anti-billionaire that's going to cause more taxation and who knows what else. Well, I'll say this. If nothing else, it shows that you can be a billionaire and your fortunes can be turned upside down in a very short amount of time and your reputation damaged and, uh, you know, your future more uncertain. And yeah. here we are at the, uh, at, the, at the dawn of 2023 and a year from now, God only knows where Elon Musk will be whether there'll be a new billionaire in town sucking up all the oxygen. We do know that billions of dollars plus a thin-skinned ego can be a very volatile combination. I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> and um, I'm not counting out Twitter. I may come back one of these days. I just got really annoyed with it for a minute there. And I also feel like it's great for keeping up on the news. It's great for bearing down on news stories that you might not necessarily see right at the headline at the top of the New York Times. But it also does need a a reset, and our relationship to it, I feel like, needs a reset. I think we're still coughing up the uh, Trump hairball, uh, (laughs) you know, and the toxic uh, stuff that's, you know, embedded in our social media, all the polarization. I do feel like we're kind of like, uh, you know, Nick Bilton has been on this program a few times, our our tech correspondent. He thinks the age of social media is coming to an end. I mean, I love Nick Bilton, but I don't understand where, I mean, what are you replacing? You can't have something if it's not replaced. So yeah, yeah, yeah. like, what is it? You know, you have all these people who delight in being their own media outlet, right? That's right. Unless you offer them something else, I think they don't leave. I just think what it is is things level out and it gets normalized and it doesn't suck up every minute of your of your life necessarily. Or people have a they figure out behaviorally how to make it a part of their life uh, without it um, 
leading to January 6th. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Going I down do... rabbit holes so deep that you lose right. touch with reality, you know, because I think that we've looked around and say, hey, if your cousin is going down the rabbit hole so far into 4chan and, you right. know, become a Twitter troll, uh, maybe there's a red flag there instead of like, oh, it's just social media, right? I do think that that they're going to end up banning TikTok. Oh, that, that will be interesting. Gonna... Okay, so there's a 2023 prediction. I like it. I like that. I, I mean, I just don't see a world in which there's, you know, Americans are— it just it seems like way too much of a of a risk, you know. I mean, there's just nothing that isn't nefarious about the Chinese government, and I just think that you know you have all your kids on this site that is. Uh, I just I think it's I think they're gonna the U.S. government is not gonna be able, especially because we don't the the kind of data uh, mining they're doing is is crazy. Well, I would love to have my teenagers back from the Chinese government <laughs> uh, because they have been uh, – they are basically owned and operated by TikTok uh, in terms of their consciousness. And, you know, if you did like a pie chart of like their daily life, you know, a, a yeah. much – Do you have girls? I have three teenage girls. Yeah, and that'll do it. Yeah, well, that's yeah. the thing. So I'm very in touch with the influence of TikTok. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's crazy. And if you see that the the children in China are being fed a completely different algorithm yeah. that's more educational and less stupid. That's right. Yeah. That there, I mean, that is a brilliant move on the part of engineers in China, but perhaps not the best for the United States. Well, the main thing I've observed is that they have a lot of misinformation, my children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, conspiracy theories. And their music taste is horrendous. <laughs> uh, um, I hope they're not listening to this. I know they're not listening to this because oh, well, it's already like 40 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> they would never make it this far. <laughs> um, Molly Jong Fast, thanks for coming on Inside the Hive. Thank you for having me. Have me back. Yeah, well, I think we will since you're a special correspondent <laughs> for Vanity Fair magazine. <laughs> Thank you. And to our listeners out there, uh, Happy New Year. And uh, let's get off to a good start. Let's hit the reset button. Let's rock and roll. Mm-hmm.